Welcome to another George Consortium COVID-19 Law and Policy Briefing presented by our colleagues around the country in association with Public Health Watch at Northeastern University and the Center for Public Health Law Research at Temple University. We're here to provide expert legal analysis during the pandemic and hopefully to answer questions you may have. I'm Nicholas Terry, a professor at Indiana University School of Law. Joining me today are Rebecca Green, professor of practice of law and co-director of the election law program at William & Mary Law School, and Philip Rocco, assistant professor in the Department of Political Science at Marquette University. Great welcome to both of you. Today we're talking elections. So <laughs> Phil, let me start with you up there in Wisconsin. You were on the ground when the elections were held there in April. We saw lines of barely socially distanced people. Can you describe the legal and political bra- background and, and what you observed then? Yeah, so right after the uh, stay-at-home or- order went into place, uh, there were a group Groups of Wisconsin voters that asked the governor uh, to uh, delay the election. And really what spilled out was a sort of uh, conjunction of a few factors. You had a governor that was very uncertain about his own powers, a really obstinate uh, legislature that was almost hostile to ballot access, uh, deferential federal courts, and a, a pretty partisan uh, state court. So immediately after the voters asked Governor Evers to do this, he sort of deferred, asked the legislature to um, take action to uh send out uh, absentee ballots to every registered voter. Legislature said that they couldn't do that. Voters then sued in the Western District of Wisconsin. Uh, The judge there, Judge Conley, took these consolidated cases and basically said he didn't have the authority to uh, delay the election. He did, however, delay uh, the deadline for absentee ballots um, from April 7th when the election is till about April 13th. The RNC and the state uh, legislature um, immediately appealed that ruling. And so sort of mean Meanwhile, while that is on appeal to the Supreme Court, you have um, the governor, again, sort of deferring responsibility to the legislature, saying that he doesn't have the authority to delay the election, calls the legislature into special session. Uh, The legislature, and if you're familiar with Wisconsin politics, this won't surprise you at all, given the nature of the relationship between legislature and the governor. The legislature gaveled in and gaveled out uh, in about a minute uh, or so, basically refused to take action. And then one day before the election, uh, the governor signs an executive order uh, delaying uh, the election until June, which is then promptly uh, contested before the state Supreme Court, which strikes it down. Um, And then uh, you have uh, the same day, later the same night, um, the uh, United States Supreme Court reverses Conley's delay of the uh, 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 absentee ballot deadline and basically citing the the Purcell uh, principle in a 5-4 decision. So this sort of combination of factors pushes all of this pressure down onto the people who are actually administering the elections, um, sort of at the at the local level, which is where I usually am. In addition to teaching at Marquette, I uh, volunteer as an election official. I did not ultimately uh, do so for for health reasons uh, on the day of the election. Uh, but in Milwaukee, we had five of 180 uh, polling places open. Um, we had sort of in the estimation of our uh, election chief here, uh, thousands of people who probably uh, would have voted uh, were they able to um, at actually at the polling place didn't show up um, to vote. I think a lot of the political discussion of this later sort of abstracted from the reality on the ground and said, well, uh, if you look at rates of turnout, given absentee ballots, they weren't that different from past uh, presidential preference primaries um, and sort of use that comparison um, to sort of basically say this is not that different uh, from normal in terms of turnout. But if you saw things sort of on the ground on election day, you would know that this was a pretty badly botched um, botched 
robust election. And we're still sort of waiting on the uh, sort of the specifics of the causal analysis and whether or not this, to what extent this contributed to um, infections. We know that there are about 26 people um, who were both at the uh, election sites and uh, developed symptoms of COVID-19 only after uh, the uh, election day. Um, But, you know, this is not the sort of thing anybody wants to repeat. But I think what you see is it's not just about the procedures in the state uh, around this, but it's also the politics, the legislature uh, on the one hand, not wanting to intervene or refusing to intervene, uh, the governor uh, sort of not being necessarily sure about his authority and and the courts sort of punting to the political uh, branches. And I think there was that sort of sense of dread we had as we looked at Wisconsin thinking, come November, are we going to see that played out 50 different times or or more? So Rebecca, uh, to the the non-election law specialists, um, one would have thought the obvious answer is you move to an absentee ballot system. Um, is that a switch that um, we can just flip? And if it does get flipped or people are considering it, how does the you know the the increased fraud argument uh, play into that? It's worth noting that in several states there already is all mail voting, so you know elections are done entirely by mail in five states already. Uh, in the rest of the states, we've seen a dramatic increase in early and absentee voting in the last several decades. So every state has systems in place to allow people to vote by mail. Uh, the problem is, of course, whether or not those states can cope with dramatically increased volumes of absentee voters um, and demands for absentee ballots and so forth. Um, and then again, another question is whether laws must be changed to make it easier for people who are concerned about their health to vote by mail. Um, some states, for example, require specific kinds of excuses to allow people to vote by mail, um, and those that list would be need to would need to be expanded in order to accommodate people who were concerned about their health. Um, other states have uh, absentee voting requirements, like witness requirements or no, even notary requirements, which will be difficult to obtain for people who um, live alone in a lockdown situation. Um, and so we're seeing lots of lawsuits around the country by groups uh, trying to make sure that absentee voting rules can accommodate uh, the change circumstances that we're operating in. Uh, uh, so for example, in Texas, uh, in Michigan, we see some litigation about expanding ac- access to absentee ballots. We see um, in Virginia, we had a case about uh, changing witness requirements uh, for people living alone. Um, so there's lots of um, challenges to current uh, administrate, uh, sorry, absentee voting rules that, um, that, that voting rights advocates are looking into to make sure that they're as accessible as possible. Um, as you mentioned, some have raised concerns about increased absentee voting fraud um, uh, as a result of a higher demand for absentee ballots. And it's worth pointing out that these concerns are not unfounded. Um, we have seen um, recently in instances of absentee voting fraud causing problems, for example, in North Carolina's uh, 9th Congressional District in the 2018 uh, election. Um, so it's not a totally unfounded concern. But at the same time, we know that in states that have been running all-male elections for decades, uh, instances of absentee voter fraud are vanishingly small, like point oh two percent or some, some some incredibly small amount. So um, so I think um, it's fair to say that lawsuits reflecting both concerns, that is access to the ballot and the integrity of the process, 
um, are going to be are, are being filed now and will be and we will continue to see them in the lead up to the election. Um, and hopefully judges and uh, legislatures will have the opportunity to resolve these access and integrity questions, uh, ideally well in advance uh, of the election. And I think um, the key is that these questions really need to be resolved quickly so that election administrators can start laying the groundwork for November's election, which is, of course, fast approaching. Wonderful. So I, I don't think we can ever do one of these um, COVID shows without having to address the sort of the lame federalism questions that, that, that increasingly come up. So I guess civil rights laws aside and so on, elections are essentially a matter of state law, state organization. So Phil, what about the federal government? Have the administration or Congress stepped up to help the states as we start looking at the uh, election? Uh, how are the politics playing out here? Yeah, so I mean, thus far, uh, Congress committed $400 million, um, in the CARES Act to election assistance funding. Um, and, you know, just for example, Wisconsin um, got $7 million uh, from that, and they're using it to purchase things like PPE, um, providing ba- absentee ballot envelopes, a lot of the important logistical aspects of elections that you don't really necessarily think about. Now, one of the interesting things about that appropriation is, unlike some of the other parts of the CARES Act, um, which had no matching requirements, um, it had a 20% match requirement for states, which meant that at least some states have found that match rate, especially as we get revised revenue estimates. Uh, that's going to potentially be onerous. Other states, um, Florida, I think is an interesting example, have not actually applied uh, for their uh, funding that they have available. And so we're not exactly clear why Governor Ron DeSantis hasn't done that. His own election commission has asked him to multiple times. Um, he hasn't done that. So what's coming next is two potential things. Um, first, there's there's a piece of legislation um, that Democrats might include in their package, uh, their next package, to just waive that 20% match requirement to enable states to uh, receive a little bit more. There's also a question about whether or not this is just, a, in fact, a drop in the bucket. And um, you know, the Brennan Center uh, for Justice has, has sort of estimated that what's really needed is something on the order of about uh, $2 billion, especially when it comes to thinking about moving to um, all-male uh, elections or, or mostly male uh, elections, keeping some uh, polling sites open, doing things like enabling, uh, we had some real workforce issues with uh, election administration here uh, in, in Wisconsin and, and sort of providing the support um, for that. Um, but I think that the politics of this will sort of founder on or will depend on the question of, is this seen as a sort of appropriation to state and local governments issue? Or is this seen as a sort of policy change? And I think, you know, at least within Congress, there's this sort of remaining partisan divide on the sort of vote by mail uh, question, even though voting by mail really doesn't have significant partisan effects um, uh, in in elections, um, but there's still that perception. I think what's interesting to me is I've not necessarily seen specific demands from the major big seven intergovernmental organizations, the counties, cities, governors, and legislatures on the election assistance, on beefing up election assistance particularly. Um, however, if there is a sort of significant, um, uh, significant uh, appropriation, they could, of course, use use that funding um, to, to support legislation or uh, to support election administration. Um, the real question, I think, is to what extent is Congress going to exercise, try to exercise a heavier hand in terms of saying this is what we think is necessary uh, for a uh, vote by mail election uh, or f- for a for an election in the midst of a pandemic? Is Are we going to require states to move to a certain percentage of voting by mail if, if they don't have it? Um, I think probably not. Uh, but what that means is that <clears throat> while the politics of financing uh, election 
election assistance will sort of remain in Congress. The question of administration um, will probably remain uh, something that we have to look at at the state level. And so I would expect to just see a lot more maps uh, in your in your news feed. So let's start uh, building up towards November. We've got a bunch of more state primaries coming up, Rebecca. Is this going to be a Zoom election? How will the candidates campaign? Um, how do you work up your ground game in these kind of situations, uh, the get out, the votes efforts and so on? Can you try and sort of sketch that out a little bit for us? Yeah, I'm not sure I have um, all the answers on that one, but um, it seems very likely that the ground game in this election will look unlike any in U.S. history. Um, one of the really interesting questions that has come up is uh, candidate ballot access petitions. So each state has rules that set the required number of signatures that a candidate has to collect to even get on the ballot. Um, and the question is whether it's fair to place such burdens on candidates when they can't go door to door safely to um, or sit outside of the supermarket um, and interact with people. Um, and so this has led to uh, this has led some to look at e-signatures. So can candidates circulate these petitions online, collect uh, collect signatures online and um, there are efforts around the country right now in states like New York and Massachusetts to um, either reduce the number of signatures required, um, and this is on this, this is actually on direct democracy petitions and candidate petitions as well, um, or to uh, allow e-signatures to enable people to sign petitions remotely or both. Um, as far as get out the vote efforts, I think it's clear that campaigns will need to revise their voter mobilization strategies. Um, and I think the real risk that we run is low voter participation in the election if, if we're unable to reach people um, where they are. Um, and of course, the, the, the safety concerns um, that might prevent large numbers of people from casting their votes. So I think um, it's fair to say that campaigns are going to be working overtime to try and mobilize their voters. Um, I think for on the part of the individual voter, I think it's critically important that every eligible voter um, not only register to vote, which many states um, have made. Uh, th there's been a big push, actually. 15 or 16 states have um, have uh, initiated uh, online voter registration portals, so you can do it remotely. Um, and then for people who already are registered to vote, it's incredibly important that they check the accuracy of the information that the state has in the voter registration database. So, for example, is your um, is your address uh, update updated? Have you moved recently? Um, you know, lots of things you can do to make sure that they have your information down correctly. Um, and then I think voters should also spend some time familiarizing themselves with in-person and absentee voting rules in their state, um, and that that information will be clearly posted on the State Department of Elections website um, as I think probably the most reliable source. Um, but I think people need to know that these rules may shift um, as legislatures and courts make adjustments to voting rules uh, to accommodate concerns with um, disruption. And I think it's also um, important, you know, just like on an airplane, when you sort of take care of yourself first, um, you should then sort of turn to others in your life who are eligible voters um, to make sure they have accurate information about voting in November. Um, so I think it's going to be a I think it's going to be a team effort. So let's let's talk November. Um, there have been a few people saying, well, maybe the election might get delayed. Is that possible? Well, so states can certainly act under emergency powers to delay 
elections. And we've seen obviously that happen um, in states like Ohio because of the current pandemic. Um, But it's important to distinguish November's election from primary elections because um, both the U.S. Constitution and federal law dictate dates certain by which each phase of the election must be complete. Uh, And that means states have a lot less leeway um, when it comes to the election in November in terms of um, postponing or delaying the vote or any portion of the of the um, of the process. Um, what I can tell you is that every state is carefully reviewing this question and determining uh, procedures for coping with possible election disruptions that may arise. I think Wisconsin is kind of a huge uh, wake-up call. Uh, you know, I think every state at this point is on notice that they they need to understand what the rules are in advance. Um, it's also important to note that this work had already started well before COVID came on the scene um, because of concerns about election security uh, disruption. So states had already been sort of thinking about, um, states and a lot of other people had um, already been thinking about potential for disruption in November and and what systems need to be in place to um, prevent that. Um, And, you know, in that vein, the good news is that states do have a lot of time to prepare for worst case scenarios and put those plans in place. Um, The bad news, as you guys were sort of talking about, is that these questions are often politicized. Um, And so I think the, the solution or the the best way forward is to try to get as much agreement on what the rules are before uh, anyone knows who they'll benefit. So, so the, the work being done, I think, is important work. All right. Well, we've only got a couple of minutes left. Let's turn to November um, with your sort of uh, final predictions as to what that might look like. And I guess that question includes whether we're going to have a, a Florida Bush versus Gore uh, series of, uh, of cases uh, following the election and so on. So, so Phil, what do you think November will actually turn out looking like? One one thing seems certain, which is I would not expect a major uh, increase in voter turnout relative to the last uh, presidential uh, election necessarily. I think you would have to imagine there would have to be a lot of changes, I think, in 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 law and the sort of barriers to election that, that might go well beyond what we are sort of likely to see in, in the 50 states uh, to make that uh, possible. Whether or not we're going to see a major drop off in in, in turnout, I think that is something where we're going to have to look at uh, what individual states uh, are doing, and so that, I think that that's much more of a, an open question. I think the the major concern is kind of regardless of what the turnout uh, scenario is and what the procedures are. I think that if we're going to be having an election in the midst of a pandemic, and uh, the one of the big challenges is that creates a, a sort of target-rich opportunity for uh, issues of election legitimacy or the politicization of uh, of electoral. Uh, procedures. And I think it's thrusting into the spotlight um, officials who are not necessarily normally used to being in the spotlight, but who have an important legitimation function to to perform. And so voter education sort of on on the front end, but also sort of illustrating the the procedures that the state has in place to ensure an accurate and fair uh, tally votes. These are things that that states actually have to perform um, publicly um, as as an almost piece of of, of theater uh, as much as it is about the actual procedures of the election. They have to demonstrate to people procedures that they have uh, to uh, ensure the legitimacy uh, of an election. And I think that's going to be challenging. Yeah. yeah. Well, Rebecca, last word for you about what you think November will look like. Um, I have a suspicion you've already cleared your calendar and you have your court (laughs) suits hanging, waiting. But what do you think it's going to look like? Well, I'm not comfortable making um, predictions with so much uncertainty 
he's swirling. But I do think people should take heart um, that the country has been put on notice, um, hopefully with adequate time to resolve a lot of these issues. I think with every lawsuit filed, both voting rights organizations and those concerns about election integrity are hammering out how to make voting in November safe uh, and accessible and reliable. Um, That said, I utter the election administrator's prayer daily, which is please let this election not be close, um, because if it is, we are in for a ride. Yes. Well, thank you to uh, my wonderful guest today. Thank you all for watching and listening. Uh, As usual, we'll be broadcasting here on Twitter at noon, uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, uh, Eastern Time each week. Uh, Just go to at PHL watch or search for hashtag COVID law briefing. Show notes are at publichealth.org's COVID-19 briefing site, and the shows are archived by the Week in Health Law podcast at www.twill.com. The COVID Law 19 law and policy briefings are produced by Faith Callick and Bethany Saxon. We'll see you next time. Wash your hands and stay safe. Thank you.